0: At the risk of um, letting you know just how bad of a kid I was growing up, uh, we used to play this joke on one another as a kid, maybe you did as well, uh, called psych, where you psych someone out. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Now I'll give you an example maybe drinking a, a, a Coke one day and uh, say to your buddy sitting next to you, hey man, you want the, you want the last sip? And he reaches up excitedly to grab it from you and only realizes then that it's an empty can. And he looks up at your face and you're smiling with an evil grin and you say, Sigh. Yeah, so you guys have done it too. Uh, or, or maybe uh, maybe uh, you go to give him a high five, right? Hey man! And then he goes up to reach your hand to to, to match you and give you the high five. And you move it real quick and you say yeah so it it uh it's always fun, right that joke as childish as it is it's always fun until you're on the receiving end of it, right and then it stinks. Well, why is that? it's because of disappointment, right even if it's something as small as a coke or a, or a high five we're disappointed when what was advertised is not what was delivered, right? It leaves us feeling let down and and upset and this happens all throughout life i mean even in like a political arena uh politicians. Claim when they're, when they're campaigning, I'll fix everything. I'll fix these problems. I'll fix this. I'll fix that. I'll do this for you. I'll do that for you. And even if they end up being a good politician, it's seldom or, or never possible for them to do all that they said while they were campaigning to get your vote. Even in the home, parents. We've been disappointed. We've been let down by, by the people that we love most at some point in our life. And, and the, the other side of that is we, as parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, will also do the same. We'll let those down that look up to us in some way or in some fashion. We're going to let people down. Just the way that we, we live and the way that we, it works out as human beings. But here's some truth that you can rest in this morning, church family. That the word psych is not in our God's vocabulary. There's, there's no sense in which he's going to advertise something or promise something or offer something and then not deliver on it. He doesn't disappoint when it comes to the things that he's committed to us and he's promised to us. And that's what we see in the text of Scripture this morning. In Acts chapter 2, that you've just heard read for you, one of the most important events in the history of the world happens, unfolds before us, and it's a mystery, right? Right? That God himself comes to live inside of the soul, inside of human beings, his creation. But that's what takes place. And and we often try to minimize this or, or maybe even avoid it. Even texts of scripture that, that point to this importance. We don't really know what to do with it. We're unsure of how it fits with our theology. How does this fit with my understanding of, of spiritual gifts and and uh, signs and wonders in the church and today that do we still have these things going on and how much of this is relevant for us today versus then the indwelling of the Holy Spirit it's a precious truth for us as Christ followers and we shouldn't just glance over it so three different commentaries I read this week offered the same outline of the text uh, John Stott, Tony Morita, and, and, and Sandy Wilson. And so rather than trying to reinvent the wheel, uh, I'm going I'm to go with, with that outline because it's the natural flow of the text. Uh, it's what unfolds for us in the 41 verses that we just read. So sort of three scenes, if you will. The event, uh, Pentecost, verses 1 through 13. The explanation of the event in 14 through 36. And then the effect of the event in 37 through 41. So that's where we're headed. That's our road map. And uh, we'll make some observations along the way. Uh, first, we see the, uh, the event itself, Pentecost. I want to reread for us uh, verses 1 through 13 um, because it emphasizes exactly what it is that's, that's taking place with the apostles, the disciples, um, as the, the promise of the Holy Spirit is, is given. So look at, again with me, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? And you see in verses 9 uh, through 11 the list of places that our brother Dennis has already read for us. It just encapsulates all of those groups of people and nations gathered together. It says they were telling then in their own tongues the mighty works of God. In verse 12, And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others were mockings and said, They are filled with new wine. So what is the event? The event is that the Holy Spirit has come to live inside of believers, Christians, followers of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit is absolutely essential to their and our salvation. So if you're here today and you've believed upon Christ, you've repented of your sins, you've trusted in Jesus for salvation then it's only because the Holy Spirit has convinced you of the gospel. It was the same for them, it's the same for us today. If you're a believer this morning, the Holy Spirit has worked belief into your heart. If you're here this morning and you've not believed, you've not repented, you've not followed Jesus, then the opposite is true. And you need the Holy Spirit to demonstrate the truth of the gospel to your heart. I would, in fact, make the case that it's your most pressing need. You need the Holy Spirit to work belief into your heart that's why the Holy Spirit is absolutely necessary now we know the Holy Spirit was at work in the Old Testament if you look back in your Old Testament we see places along the way where it says that he was filled with the Holy Spirit or she was filled and even in creation in Genesis chapter 1 we see that the Spirit hovered over the waters in creation so the Spirit is at work the Spirit is present in the Old Testament but here in Acts something monumental is happening in the Old Testament, the Spirit primarily resided in the tabernacle as they were nomadic moving around in the wilderness. Then once they arrived in the promised land, the Holy Spirit primarily resided in the temple. That's where you would go if you wanted to be near to God. You went to the tabernacle or temple. Now, in Acts chapter 2, there's a transition taking place. In Acts chapter 2, we see the Holy Spirit will come to dwell not in a tent or in a temple, but in his people. And it's not so it's not that we would know we would now go somewhere to be near God. God has come near to us. And in fact, as near as possible, He lives in us. And so what do we know about this occasion, this event that took place in these first verses? Well, we know that it happened on Pentecost. When we talk about Pentecost in our context, we usually think of this event, the event we call Pentecost. But in doing so, we're actually hijacking a term, a day, that was already special, it was already important to the Jews. The word literally means 50th day from, the, from Passover. It was uh, one of the major festivals, one of the three major feasts that Jews celebrated. And when they celebrated this feast, they had in mind, they came together, and they had in mind the occasion of Mount Sinai. Now, if you remember back to your Old Testament, at Mount Sinai, that's where God condescends. He comes down and meets with Moses and gives the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. And they remembered that event together as part of this festival, this feast, Pentecost. Well, here at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, God's going to come down again. Here's what's really cool about this whole scene, is that God's going to come down again, but it's to live in his people. It's not to write his law on tablets of stone like he did for Moses back at Sinai, but now he's going to write it upon our hearts as he lives, gives his spirit to live inside of us. So that's, that's what's happening here, and it's happening on the event of Pentecost. That's why it's called that. But what was it like? You see some descriptions in the text very clear, vivid pictures of what it was like. The first thing you see uh, in the text is that there were, there were majestic sounds that were present. The power of the Spirit descends and it's described as having the sound of a, of a mighty rushing wind. Or that word can also be translated breath. A mighty rushing breath. It should make you think back to God breathing life into Adam. Or ezekiel chapter 37 where um, breath is breathed into dry bones and they live it's the same place the same thing that takes place in us spiritually that that god would give his spirit that uh, his spirit would come down and he would consecrate just like in the old testament he would consecrate the temple the physical temple the spirit is here consecrating a new temple god's covenant people as he breathes life the life of himself in his people and as he does that in this occasion, in Acts 2, it sounded like a violent, rushing wind. The second thing we note is that it was accompanied with magnificent sights. Uh, look at the sights that were present here. Uh, the, the, the picture of fire coming down. It shouldn't surprise us. God's presence is often associated with fire. If you think back to the Old Testament, uh, the burning bush and Moses' encounter there with God. Uh, the pillar of fire that led the Israelites through the wilderness. Uh, the tabernacle and, and temple where God's presence was would show up in fire. And Hebrews 12.29 in the New Testament tells us that God, our God, is a consuming fire. And so the picture here is the same on this day of Pentecost. Our our consuming fire, our God, who is a consuming fire, is falling upon his new temple as he did his Old Testament one. And the fire looks like tongues, which is important for our next observation, which is miraculous speech was present. Verse 4 says that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, this can have a range of meanings in the New Testament, but most often when Luke uses this language, and Luke in Luke and Acts, this filled with the Holy Spirit language, it's usually accompanied with or combined with a speaking or preaching event. They're filled with the Holy Spirit and they prophesied or they spoke or they preached or they said this. Now, we'll go into a, a bit more detail on this in a moment, but in, in chapter two, they're filled with the Holy Spirit and they begin to speak different languages. <laughs> Here's a note that we need to observe, though, before we even try to unpack what that means. When people are filled with the Holy Spirit, they can do a variety of activities, but all of them, 100% of those activities, magnify Jesus, not themselves, right? So in the, in the scriptures, when you read and you hear that language, so and so was filled with the Spirit, whatever follows that, something that points to, magnifies, lifts high Christ, and not that person. And so, in our context, in our world, when you hear people claiming to be filled with the Spirit, and then the activity that follows that claim points to them or makes much of them more than it does Christ, then you can be sure they're filled with something, but it's not the Holy Spirit. Filled with themselves, they're magnifying themselves. That's not what's taking place here. They're filled with the Spirit, and then they preach Jesus. (laughs) And some claim here that this is an example of people speaking in a heavenly or prayer tongue, a prayer language, like you see in 1 Corinthians 14 with Paul there in 1 Corinthians 14. But if you read the text, they're clearly speaking known dialects. They're speaking languages that were known to people. They're not speaking a a heavenly tongue. Verse 5 says that there were people from every nation under heaven there. Verse 6 says that each of those travelers were hearing the disciples speak in his own language. So known tongues, not some sort of heavenly language at this occasion. But known tongues, even more profound, verse 7, they were amazed by this because these disciples were Galileans. Now when I say that, it might not strike you as odd. You may think, well, what's the big deal there that they're Galileans? Why is that weird? These Galilean disciples had not been trained in foreign languages. And in fact, they were not known to have any sort of sophisticated formal education. These guys were normal Joes, fishermen, craftsmen, tradesmen. Tax collectors, they were just common dudes. I can tell some of you are still not getting why this is a big deal, so let me try to illustrate it maybe the best way a a Louisiana boy can. Imagine Uncle Si from uh, from Duck Dynasty. Y'all know what I'm talking about, the big long beard and his teacup. Imagine Uncle Si standing before a room full of ambassadors from all over the world, and among that group is the ambassador of China. And then Uncle Sai is standing there and he's preaching the gospel. He's offering the gospel to them. He's preaching Jesus in this room full of ambassadors, and the Chinese ambassador is hearing Uncle Sai in perfect Mandarin Chinese. That's why this is strange. Uncle Si, I don't know Chinese. And they're hearing it in Chinese. Now you're getting it. That's what's going on here in the book of Acts. These people are astonished because this is what's taking place. Normal guy like me gets up behind the pulpit and they're hearing it in German and in Chinese and in French. I don't know any of those languages. Here's the point. God's spirit fills them and they tell the nations about him. That's the point of them being filled with the spirit. That's the point of these tongues that are taking place here. Does that characterize us? Not necessarily the tongues part of it, but the fact that they're filled by the Spirit and they can't help but to tell the nations about him. That should characterize us. Verse 12 says that they were perplexed, and rightly so. They'd heard these majestic sounds. They'd witnessed these magnificent sights. They they had heard this miraculous speech that was taking place. And so, because they had no other natural explanation left for this strange phenomenon... Some accuse these Christians of being drunk. They're filled with new wine. Which, by the way, I find hilarious that when Peter answers this accusation in verse 15, he says, these people aren't drunk, as you suppose, for it's only the third hour of the day. Now catch us on the ninth hour of the day. Maybe. (laughs) That's a joke. Drunkenness is a sin. Go read Galatians 5. Just so you guys don't start throwing anything at me. What is God teaching us here with this miraculous sign of tongues, Friends, the, the truth of this text is, is clear to us that the gospel is for the nations, and that the church must be taking the gospel to every nation, tribe and tongue. And Acts chapter two is proof that the gospels for the entire world and what happened on Pentecost serves as hard evidence for us that we don't worship some tribal deity. That God's not just concerned with our affairs or with Israel's affairs or one group of people's affairs. He's a God who desires to be worshipped from every nation, tribe, and tongue, every people. Some have made the connection that Pentecost is a reversal of what happened at the Tower of Babel. Just a reminder, if if you remember in Genesis chapter 11, God introduced human languages, multiple human languages, as a way to frustrate man's plans. Man was trying to build a tower, right, that would reach up into the heavens so that he could be made much of. God says, I'll teach you. So he gives other languages, these multiple languages, so that they can't communicate with one another. It frustrates their plans, and they're dispersed all over the, the world. Well, at Pentecost, God unites everyone in Jerusalem by allowing the gospel to cross language barriers. So in some sense, it is a reversal of Babel, what he's doing with languages. But there's a major difference. As you observe in the text, God didn't give everyone the same language like they had before Babel. Instead, unique languages were preserved as everyone heard the same message in their language. You see the difference? This is huge. It shows us that God worked a miracle so that he could preserve the value in diversity. He didn't give them the same language again like they had before Babel. No, he kept their unique languages and performed a miracle so they could hear it and understand it in their own language. In other words, God is glorified in Christ-exalting unity amidst diversity. God loves it that we're different. And this morning, friends, the, the, the church, we as the people of God, are not beautiful this morning because of everything that we have in common. In fact... The church is beautiful in spite of everything that they don't have in common and the one thing that we do have in common, which is the gospel. That's what we're unified around. Pentecost shows us what, in, in the world, on this day and in our day, what the coming kingdom of God is going to look like. People from every nation, every culture, every language, every economic status, every race, every tribe, every background, united under the lordship of King Jesus. It's given us a sneak peak of his coming kingdom don't you think the church should look like that today how would it look to a watching world a world that that seems to be ready to fight over anything at any time how would it look against that backdrop Our world today, if you came into this room and you saw Caucasians and Hispanics and African Americans, the poor, the rich, former drug addicts, professionals, sitting on the pew together. Why? Because the gospel has created a unity that can't be broken and transcends those details. That's powerful to a watching world. I think it should characterize us as well. Second scene in the text. You have an explanation of the event. The explanation of what's taking place here at Pentecost. And this whole thing is Peter's sermon. And so let's read it as a sermon. Let's read it together as Peter is preaching it. Verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give, word, give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. And the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And that shall come to pass that everyone, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with him an oath to him that he would sit, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Jesus of the Christ of the Christ, and he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. What we just read is Peter's response to the question back in verse 12. If you remember back in verse 12, what does all this mean? (laughs) What's the meaning of all this? They're watching these things take place, these signs and wonders, this miraculous speech. And what does all this mean? And Peter, he gives them an explanation. But before we even note what he says to them, before we even note the explanation, note how Peter does this. The method, the way that Peter does this is important. He opens his Bible to the book of Joel and he preaches a sermon to them. And this is why we do what we do every Sunday morning in a tech-driven world where we we have movies and 3D movies and video games and and all sorts of media that we could package the gospel in, and certainly we're not prohibited from using those things. But in a world where all of those options are available, the preaching of God's inspired word is still irreplaceable. It's the means by which he's ordained, his God-ordained means of communicating the gospel to a lost world. That's what Peter did. That's what we're to be about as well. well. Peter's sermon from Joel here offers us four truths that explain the events of Pentecost. I'll give them to you quickly. First thing Peter's sermon does is it explains that Pentecost means that the scriptures are being fulfilled. Verse 16 says this, Pentecost, these events that you're seeing, this miraculous sign that you're seeing, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Now, Peter's audience here, they're, they're witnessing the fulfillment of prophecy, and he's, he's sharing that with them as a, as a Jewish celebration of, of Pentecost, their celebration. They would have been familiar with and be reading the prophet Joel. And Peter takes this opportunity to say, this that you're seeing is that that you're reading about in Joel. You're, you're seeing it lived out, what Joel was talking about. He's showing them it's, it's fulfillment of prophecy. Second thing Peter's sermon does, it says Pentecost means that we're living in the last days. Look at Verse 17. Peter quotes Joel, but not exactly. If you go back to Joel, you'll see that Joel 2.28 begins, and it shall come to pass. Well, Peter starts, but he doesn't start that exact same way. Instead, Peter says, and in the last days it shall be. It's a small difference, but it's an important difference. Peter is pointing it out to them and to us that since Christ has been risen, that since he has ascended, that we're awaiting the final part of the story, the conclusion to the story where Jesus will return. In other words, Peter's saying, we're living in the final chapter. We're living in the last days. We're awaiting the return of our king. That's the time that we're in right now. Third thing that Peter's sermon does, shows that Pentecost means that anyone can know God and that those who know him should make him known to others. Anyone can know God and for those of us who know him, we should be making him known to others. Peter quotes Joel here in the Old Testament as saying that these days are the days when every believer from every tribe would be a prophet. Now that doesn't mean that every believer, that God calls every person to the office of a prophet, of a, of a pastor, which is to proclaim the word of God, but it does mean that every believer should be about the, the tasks, the main task of a prophet, which is to proclaim Jesus. In other words, God's people, filled with God's spirit, are to know God. We have the ability and are to know God and proclaim him to others. That's what Peter's, Peter's teaching. And all of this language about dreaming dreams and prophesying. If that's not clear enough, by Peter citing Joel, the rest of the New Testament affirms this. Colossians chapter 3 verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. Paul's not writing that to a room full of pastors. He's writing that to the church. Admonish one another, believers. Teach one another, believers. Romans chapter 15, verse 14. Paul again, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. He's teaching. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. He's not writing that to pastors or evangelists. He's writing that to believers. Are you ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you, why are you a Christian? Why do you worship? Because we're to be about the task of proclaiming Jesus, making him known, proclaiming him to others. Fourth thing that Peter's sermon here does, it shows that Pentecost... Uh, is, is, is validating, proving the gospel to be true. Pentecost shows us that the gospel's true. And this is the largest uh, section of his sermon in this final part. Peter moves away from Joel and proving that this is, this is prophecy being fulfilled. This was predicted and now it's coming true. He moves to the good news of the gospel. And, and exactly how is it true? Exactly how is this taking place? And watch how he does it. He walks through the gospel. He starts with the man Jesus Christ. Verse 22. The humanity. You guys saw him. I'm not telling you anything you didn't know. You saw him. He was from Nazareth. He walked among you. You saw Jesus. He was was a man that walked and lived among you. There were also signs and wonders that validated that he was a man, but he was more than a man. He was God himself. He starts with the divinity and the humanity of Jesus. He moves on to the plan. Verse 23. Peter describes uh, the death of Christ as being both a, a divine and human event. He emphasizes the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man here. That Christ's death was predestined. Why would Peter emphasize this? Why would this be a a main point for Peter? Well, the Jews, his audience this day, they couldn't imagine a a crucified Messiah. For them, Messiah wins. (laughs) Messiah conquers. Jesus, however, was crucified in shame and in agony. How in the world could this possibly be the Messiah? So Peter shows them that Jesus didn't die a pathetic victim. No, instead, he laid down his life in fulfillment of God's sovereign plan. This was intended. God planned it just like this. This is exactly what was intended to happen. At the same time, the Bible doesn't teach fatalism. Every person is accountable for his or her actions. So Peter reminds them that that this audience on this day, that they were responsible for Christ's death. You crucified him. Here's the rest of that story. You and I are also culpable there. We crucified him. Sinful people plot to dethrone God. Sinful human beings plot to kill their maker. That's what he's teaching them. He moves on to the resurrection. This is where we spent our time last week. Verse 24, Peter tells them that God raised Christ up from death because death could not hold him. That it was impossible for death to hold our king. That the scripture had had promised that this holy one would not see decay. And this is Peter's way of doing this. He quotes Psalm 16. That Christ is the promised one of Psalm 16. That David is writing about him back then. And that the reason he's writing about him back then is the same reason that Christ is not the tomb, in the tomb anymore. He is the Messiah. He's the Holy One that would not, uh, would not be uh, captured, contained by death. All of this hinges on the resurrection of Jesus. He goes on to explain that, that Jesus was witnessed by all of these people. First-hand encounters. Eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ, which leads to Peter's conclusion that he is indeed the Messiah. There it is, the gospel, that Jesus came, fully man, he was fully God, he lived a perfect life, he died, he was killed by the hands of sinful man, he was raised, which shows that he was the only sufficient sacrifice for sin, he died for his own creation, and here's the proof Peter's saying, here's the proof. All of this happened. The resurrection proves it. And the only conclusion from this is that Jesus is and forever will be the Messiah. He's the one prophesied about. He's the one that's conquered death. And he uses, again, the Bible. Psalm 110. You read verses 34 and 35. He's quoting the Psalms. That David saw the ascended Christ. In some way, in prophetic way, he saw the ascended Christ. Peter's using the scriptures to make this case. And Peter concludes his sermon with this last and firm statement. He says this, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Jesus didn't soft-pedal the gospel. He made it clear. You missed it. You killed the Messiah. Friends, Our culture, our country, our world today need more preachers like Peter who will just say it like it is. We need more believers like Peter who will stand up and boldly proclaim the truth of the gospel at the risk of popularity, at the risk of even their own lives, that they don't back away from sharing the truth of God's word. Taking a cue from Peter this morning, let me not sugarcoat this for you. If you are here this morning and you've never repented of your sins and trusted Christ for salvation, you've never given yourself wholly to the Lord, then you have missed it. You have killed the Messiah and your sins and his blood is still on your hands. And if you die in that state, you will forever, for all eternity, suffer the consequences, the right and just judgment and punishment for your sin for all eternity. That's what Peter's saying. You missed the Messiah. You killed our King. And the same truth would be for us today. Believe the gospel that Christ is the one. He's the Messiah that came to take away our sin. Third scene we see here, a third part of this text, is the effect of Pentecost. We see it in verses 37 through 41. We really, if you want to be honest, see it in the rest of Acts. And we really see it throughout the history of the church and believers all across the world up to this present moment. Is the effect of Pentecost. Let's read in verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter... To the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do? And we'll see the effect of Pentecost throughout the rest of our study through Acts, but here in particular in verse 37, you see the effect of Peter's sermon in chapter 2. They were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. God's word has that unique ability, right? Catch phrases or catchy slogans, bumper stickers, they can get our attention. They can cause us to think, but nothing cuts to the heart and produces lasting change like God's word. That's what cut to the heart. That's what made it such that they couldn't not respond. They were cut to the heart. And notice this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter, What shall we do? What shall we do? What's our response to this? Friends, I can think of no better question in all the world for them to have been asking or for you to be asking this morning if you're here and you've not trusted Christ. It's the most pressing question any of us can ask. What should we do with this truth that Christ is the king? He's the the one who came to give his life as a ransom for many. What do we do with this truth? They understood they were objects of God's wrath and they longed to be free of condemnation. Notice this too. They didn't wait for Peter to dim the lights, sing six verses of I surrender all, and give this long emotional altar call. They went to him and begged him, Brothers! Brothers! How should we respond? What do we do with this truth that's cut to our hearts? And the same is true today, friends. The Spirit of God, He gets a hold of your heart. and He He, He convinces you of the truth of the gospel and works belief into your heart. You don't have to be manipulated into a decision. You thrust yourself upon the mercy of Christ. This is the one who deserves my life, my allegiance, the confession of my sin. And this is a case study in how the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and works it into people's hearts and the appropriate response. So as you go out and witness and proclaim the gospel and tell your kids about the truth of the gospel and your neighbors and your co-workers, as you do that faithfully, do it in prayer that the Spirit of God will be doing His work of preparing hearts and of bringing people to a place of conviction and repentance. That's what's going on here. Remember, that's what they had been doing They've been praying, seeking the face of God, seeking his will, so that when the word of God goes out, people are, people are broken. How do we respond to this truth? In the next verses, we see the, the glorious work of conversion. Look at verse 38. Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. That's us, by the way. Everyone whom the Lord, our God, calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. So what's required for salvation? Repent and believe the gospel. And that belief, that faith, is expressed through the act of Baptism. It's a public declaration of one's faith, decision to follow Jesus. I often explain it like this. I wear a wedding wedding ring. This ring tells the whole world that I'm married to Jessica. And not least of which, because of my dashing good looks, it tells other ladies that I'm taken. I'm no longer single. Don't come after me. That's a joke too, by the way. If I take this ring off to to change the oil in my truck... Or to skin a deer. I take the ring off and set it down. It doesn't mean that in that moment I'm unmarried to Jessica. It just means I'm taking my ring off. Because it's a symbol of the commitment that I've made. The commitment is not contingent upon the symbol. Does that make sense? Just because I take this off doesn't mean that I'm unmarried now to her. And the same is true of baptism. Baptism. It doesn't save you or make you saved, and you don't lose your salvation if you're not baptized. It's a symbol of the commitment that you've made to Jesus. It's a way that you announce to the world, shout off the rooftops, I am following Jesus. Some of you may have heard that and thought, whew, that's good. I'm not required to do it, so I don't have to do it. And my reply to you would be, check your heart, friend. Check your heart. If you're unwilling to profess publicly that you're a follower of Jesus, then do you really belong to him? Matthew 10 tells us that whoever denies me before men, Jesus says, I will also deny before my Father in heaven. So obedience for some of you this morning may look like you coming to me out of the service saying, Hey, Matt, it's time I need to be baptized to announce to the world that I'm a follower of Jesus. Of the book of Acts, which we'll do, and I'll point out to you when we get there every time, you'll see that, that there's no way in which baptismal regeneration is taught, because saving faith is what precedes the, the symbol, the, the act of the ordinance of baptism. You see this clearly in chapter 2, which we're in, chapter 3, chapter 10, chapter 13, 15, 16, and 20. I can give you those later if you want to go and study those texts. It's a good thing to, to talk about even among your, your growth groups. How do we understand baptism in this Process this order that we've been commanded to. So, as we conclude this morning, aren't you glad that God is not like juvenile Matt James and playing psych on people? That when he promises things, he's a promise keeping God. That when he promises salvation, he delivers. When he promises a Messiah, he delivers. When he promises eternal life to those who believe, he delivers. When he promises the indwelling of his spirit, power from on high, the text says. He delivers. That's what we see in the text this morning. And that when he promises to build us into a church, a building not made with bricks, but a building made with human souls, the rest of Acts shows us that that's what he's delivering. This is the the good news of the gospel, that he's a promise-keeping God who delivers on everything that he's promised. And so as we see the conclusion of this text, this event this morning, is that God places his spirit inside you and me, inside of his people, as he's forming them into a church. That's what Acts is showing us. that that wasn't the end. When they're indwelled by the Spirit, they're sitting, it's done. He's forming them into a community. And so for some of you this morning, obedience may look like you becoming a part of this church. You say, well, I've never really understood why membership's important. I'm here every week. God's forming, he's knitting them into a, a, a community. As a believer, God's placed his Spirit inside of you, and his intentions are for you to live out your life with the Spirit inside of you in the context of a church a community that he's he's built. That's what Acts is teaching us. So this morning, as we pray, as we go to the Lord in prayer, and we respond to this text, are you filled with the Spirit? Are you knowing God daily and making him known to others as, as, as we see as evidence of the indwelling of his Spirit? Are you a member of the church? Have you been baptized? It's an incredible application from this text as we, his people, are filled by his Spirit and sent out to be his ambassadors to a lost world. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that it would cut deeply to hearts this morning. We thank you that it has the power and is effective to do that. That unlike the words of men, your word, Father, has the ability to reveal Christ to us. That your spirit has the ability to shape and mold our hearts to form us to look more like Jesus every day spirit even now as you work in our presence that you're affirming this truth you're increasing you're producing belief in many of us even at this very moment our hearts are resonating with the truth of the gospel spirit we also pray that you would do the work of producing belief in people this morning that have never believed before that as we respond to your word that you would convict of sin And you would lead by your kindness to repentance and faith in Christ. God, I pray for every soul, every person that's represented here, every ear that's hearing me right now at this moment. That you would lead us to Jesus. That we would be obedient in response to the text that we've heard this morning. Jesus, we give you this time. You be magnified as you fill your people. And I pray that every one of us would point people to Jesus name, I pray.